You know, one of the hardest parts about making this podcast is getting things right. That's because there are a couple different kinds of being right. There's the matter of having the right facts, the names, the dates, the places. But then there's also the matter of looking at the whole picture, to be able to see world events as complicated and interconnected. No nation exists in a vacuum. Everything is related. Untextbook producer Jessica Chiraboga first started connecting the dots when she was a freshman in high school. It was the height of the 2016 election, and she noticed a big change in the way people were talking about race. Around the time that I started doing more digging was around 2016, where there was a lot more of this very xenophobic sentiment. And I really sort of wanted to push back on that just because when my grandparents came over here, they were hardworking people. Like my grandfather, he sold tickets and food on the streets of Quito, and he was able to get my family into a position where he came to the United States and, you know, made a life for himself and made a life for our family. And to hear all this negative rhetoric really concerned me because I knew the people that I knew and the people that are in my family, they were not rapists, they were not criminals, they were, you know, amazing people who really wanted to do, do the best that they could. And so I guess that sort of inspired me to look more into how uh, the U.S. paints Latin America. And usually that perception has always been Uh, Latin Americans are backwards, they're incapable of self-rule, they're incredibly corrupt. The United States' relationship with Latin America is incredibly complex. We've villainized entire countries and praised others. Sometimes we've sent aid, and sometimes we've sent guns. And we've covertly overthrown dictatorships and democracies alike. And that brings us to Chile, just one country in this web of stories. The year was 1970 and a socialist candidate had just barely won the presidency. His name was Salvador Allende, and he had promised big social and economic changes. And in the United States, President Nixon was worried. His national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, was worried too. So they drafted plans to disrupt the Allende presidency by forcing him out of office in a coup. There's still a lot unknown about what the CIA did or didn't do in Chile. But in 1973, the Chilean military forced Allende out. He was replaced by a far-right dictator named Augusto Pinochet. His government killed thousands of Chileans and eventually carried out a brazen assassination on American soil. We didn't know the full story at the time. We likely still don't. But declassified documents are now putting the actions of Nixon, Kissinger, Allende, and Pinochet into bigger context. In his book, Intimate Ties, Bitter Struggles, Historian Alan McPherson looks deeper. His whole argument of his book was to present U.S.-Latin American relations as a lot more complex than we ever thought it was. That sort of nuanced thinking was super important for me to see and was a perspective that I was really looking forward to. After the break, Jessica interviews Alan McPherson about the coup of 1973 and the ripple effects we're still feeling today. I'm Gabe Hostin, and this is on Textbook. On Textbooked. In your book, Intimate Ties, Bitter Struggles, you talk about the story of Latin America as being the story with different characters, with different actors, sort of interacting together in different ways. Can you give us 
just a little short explanation of who's the character of Allende and then who's the character of Pinochet. What were their motivations and why did they want to be in power in Chile? Yeah. Well, they're both white men. (laughs) They're both white Latino men. You know, I think Allende was sort of the, you know, I wouldn't call him a caricature, but sort of a character of the educated left. He wasn't really a radical. Um, He wasn't kind of a working class guy. He was educated. He had been a senator. He had run for the presidency several times. And he was sort of, you know, he wanted a a good socialist society, sort of a peaceful, developed socialist society, very civilized, you know, where everybody drank good Chilean wine and got along well, and we worked a little bit harder to help the poor get up uh, in, in, in society. Um, and Pinochet was not particularly bright, but obsessed with discipline and order, thought that he was sort of the savior of Chilean society. The Chilean society was going to hell and he was going to bring it back from the brink, save it, bring it back to his sort of Christian Catholic roots. And I think he saw himself as sacrificing himself for Chile for the rest of his life. And that's always what he's told uh, the Chilean people. You know, I've spent my whole life sacrificing myself for you. So very opposite. And so I guess the question we have is, Say I'm a high school student, I'm a layperson who has no knowledge of all these dynamics between, you know, the U.S. and Latin America. What's sort of the 10, 20-second, you know, Sparknotes version of this coup? The path that we get from Allende to Pinochet. Most important thing, democratically elected Marxist president gets overthrown by a right-wing military dictatorship with the help of the CIA. Right. That tells you a lot about the dynamics of the Cold War, how little patience the United States had for Latin Americans making their own decisions, for anybody veering from the path of sort of liberal capitalism during the Cold War. Right. And it tells you a lot about the, the Nixon-Kissinger government also. Right. Republican governments especially tended to have sort of no faith that democracy could work So they looked at things in a very sort of black and white way, and they said, you know, if it's not very, very pro-capitalist, then it's a complete gain for the Soviet Union, right? This is what's called the the fixed pie theory of the Cold War, right? Either it's a gain for us or it's a loss for us, right? And therefore, it's a gain for the Soviet Union. So everything that happens around the world, we lose a piece of that pie or we gain a piece of the pie, but the pie never gets bigger. So we have a little memo that we found when you know, the American public got to know more about what happened and the U.S. involvement. So I'm going to screen share that really quickly, and we're just going to read it over, and then I'll have a little question about that. Can you read that okay? Yes. So who would you like to be? Would you like to be Kissinger or the president? I'll be Kissinger. So the audience knows we are now reading the Kissinger president at Telecon. It's a transcript of a conversation between Kissinger and President Nixon. Uh, Okay, so hello. Hi, Henry. Mr. President? Where are you? In New York? No, I'm in Washington. I'm working. I may go to the football game this afternoon if I get through. Good, good. Well, it is the opener. It is better than television. Nothing new of any importance. Or is there? Nothing of very great consequence. The Chilean thing is getting consolidated. And of course, the newspapers 
are believing, uh, because a pro-communist government has been overthrown. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? I mean, instead of celebrating, in the Eisenhower period, we would be heroes. Well, we didn't, as you know. Our hand doesn't show on this one, though. We didn't do it. I mean, we helped them. A blank created the conditions as great as possible. That is right. And that is the way it is going to be played. But listen, as far as people are concerned, let me say they aren't going to buy this crap from the liberals on this one. Absolutely not. Great memo. I never heard, I never read that. Yeah, definitely. It's sort of a, a hidden gem that sort of comes up. Yeah, there's an important blank there, right, where they say sort of blank, blank's hand doesn't show in this, something like that. Uh, I think that means the CIA or maybe an actual specific person. Um, but what he's talking about is that, you know, for three years, this is, this is September 1973, clearly this telephone conversation, which is, you know, the month of the coup against Allende. You know, Allende has been in power for three years. And at this point, the CIA has been heavily involved in undermining him, right? They've spent millions of dollars doing all sorts of things, right? Creating strikes, bribing people, uh, planting stories in the media, you know, creating the atmosphere in Chile that Chileans hate Allende and creating also an economic crisis quite overtly, right? The U.S. government is, is keeping loans from Chile, you know, taking all of its aid away from Chile and so on. So creating this sort of hothouse atmosphere where people are going to start blaming Allende for, for all of the country's problems. And then when the military strikes and overthrows Allende, they're going to say, well, he had it coming. Right. And the United States is behind a lot of this. So the, the blank in this case is CIA getting involved in intervening, as you said, economically and politically. Yes. So say, you know, I'm a Chilean and I want to get rid of this Marxist president, Allende. How do I get in contact with the CIA to overthrow a government? How do they contact me? How do we get this started? Yeah, well, the CIA is already contacting you, right? If they think that you're important, um, you know, they're contacting people in the military who they know hate Allende. They're con contacting uh, heads of right-wing parties. And frankly, the right-wing is the majority of Chile at that time because Allende gets in with plurality of votes, right? The right is split among these parties, and so Allende only wins 36% of the vote. But it's more than anybody else, and constitutionally, he then becomes president. Um, so it's easy to find people who don't like Allende. It's already the majority of people who didn't vote for him, right? But instead of sort of letting the democratic system work itself out, you know, Chile, you know, Chile would have had economic problems no matter what, right? If Allende had been left, you know, on his own, he probably would have had problems and would have been and probably would have lost the next election. But the United States has no patience for this. They say, no, no, we want a coup. Now, that being said... What Kissinger and Nixon are saying that is true is that they didn't actually do this, right? They're not the ones directly responsible for the coup. And I think it's important to sort of make that distinction. So while the CIA and the State Department in many ways is sort of putting pressure on the Yende, they're not doing it themselves, right? There are no U.S. troops involved here. There's no sort of direct CIA employees involved in this. But they're getting rumors that there's many people in the military who want to overthrow Allende. And if you have a normal relationship with an allied government, you would tell them this. If you're hearing rumors that in the military is going to overthrow the president, you would tell the president. 
That's a normal thing you would do in diplomacy if you're the most powerful country in the world. Instead, the United States basically says, nobody tell Allende, and we'll just let the chips fall where they may. You know? And then, of course, when the coup comes, then they lavish this new, this new dictator, this new president, with all the aid, right? All the aid spigot starts turning, starts running again, and, he, you know, and, and Pinochet, who is the leader of the coup, has all the money he wants. So clearly, the United States has given the coup a green light. Definitely. You know, we see the U.S. sort of creating the conditions, not being directly involved, but definitely let, uh, laying that groundwork. But do you believe that there still would have been a coup if, say, the U.S. hadn't given any aid, hadn't uh, played any role in sort of creating that, those conditions? I think, you know, it, it's hard to tell for sure, but I think there would have been a coup. Maybe it would have taken a little bit longer. Maybe there would have been another election and then a coup. But definitely there was plenty of people who wanted him out, right, from day one. Um, but, you know, acting against them was this great democratic tradition in Chile, right, is that you respect the outcome of elections. So we have Pinochet taking over as this military dictator guy. Why is his regime so controversial? Well, mostly because of how it, he takes over. I mean, it's, it's incredibly violent. I mean, they kill, they kill over 3,000 people. And so there's really this sort of hunt for any kind of subversives. And subversives to them means anybody who, you know, who opposes you. So Chileans are fleeing the country in droves. And these are people who are just, you know, they're students, they're intellectuals, they, you know, they're teachers. They're not people who are ready to join any kind of, you know, militant organization or take up the gun. Uh, but they know, you know, that at some point they went to a meeting of the Socialist Party and the military probably knows this and they're coming after them, right? The least that will happen to them is that they'll lose their jobs so, and they won't be able to work in the country, so they have to leave. So, you know, these Chilean migrants, these refugees, I should say, are the ones often who are kind of raising the alarm, right? They're going into publications and churches and universities all over the Western world and saying these things, these terrible things are happening. And it's also a shock and it grabs the attention of the world because Chile was such a democratic country. And so people start asking why, right? I mean, there's a real sort of hatred on, on both sides and both sides are accusing each other of not being Chileans, right? The left is calling the right, you know, not Chileans, traitors to Chile. The right is calling the left essentially also being not Chileans, you know? And they really think that it's sort of this war for civilization, the right in Chile is very Christian, very Catholic, and they really see the left as the devil, right? These are the tools of the sort of the devilish, you know, non-religious Marxist Soviet Union. And they want to bring this complete lack of civilization into, into Chile, and we cannot let this happen. So a lot of it then, they, they create these lies, right? When, you, when you've demonized your opponents so much, you have to create lies. I mean, there's a broad sort of conspiracy theory that Allende was going to do to the Chilean right what the Chilean right is doing to the Allende followers, right? That there was like a plan, a plan Z is what it was called, to kill all these right-wing Chileans. And it, was, it wasn't true, right? That they had tortured all of these right-wing Chileans. That's also not true. I mean, there's all these crazy conspiracy theories. So it's kind of like this propaganda and fake news, but from the 1970s. So your latest book, Ghosts of Sheridan Circle, touches on the 1976 assassination of, of two figures in Washington, D.C. Can you explain a little bit what occurs and how this changed American perception around Pinochet's regime? 
Yes. Uh, yeah, this is my book that came out uh, six months, nine months ago. It's about the 1976 car bombing of a man called Orlando Letelier. Orlando Letelier was the former ambassador to the United States from Chile, right? So for most of the NDA regime, this was his representative in Washington. After the coup of 73, Letelier is clearly not working for, <laughs> for the Chilean government anymore. He's a socialist. And in fact, he's been in a prison for a year. Then he gets released and he ends up in Washington working as a private citizen for a think tank. And he's working essentially against Pinochet, right? Denouncing the human rights violations, that sort of thing. He has in his car, he's going to work on September 21st, 1976 at nine in the morning. In his car with him is a, is a co-worker. She, she's 25 years old. Her name's Ronnie Moffat. She's an American. Just happens to be in the car. In fact, her husband, who they just got married, her husband is in the backseat. And Pinochet has arranged through his secret police to have folks in the United States put a bomb under his car. They detonate it. The two folks in the front, which is Letelier and Ronnie Moffat, die almost immediately. Um, and then, you know, it sort of awakens a lot of people to how, how aggressive the Chilean government really thinks and can be, right? It really feels that it has immunity around the world. Now, this assassination is part of a larger pattern called Operation Condor in which the Chilean government and many other right-wing military governments from South America have banded together to seek out each other's enemies and to essentially say, well, okay, you've got a, a Brazilian opponent of the regime that's hiding out in Argentina, we'll get him for you, right? Or just come and get him, we'll tell you where he is, that sort of thing. And they're killing all of these leftists, you know. Um, this one is the only one that takes place in the United States where the Chileans say, okay, we've, we know this guy's here, we're going to kill him, and he's going to be an example to all the other Chileans around the world so that they can stop being a thorn in our side. And I think a lot of Americans wake up to the fact that, okay, this is not just happening thousands of miles away in South America where we don't really need to care about this, right? It's happening in Washington, D.C., and not just in some city in the United States, in Washington, D.C., right? You can hear it from the State Department, right? The bomb is so loud. And, you know, it's done by an ally of the United States who we thought was on our side in the Cold War and is, but thinks that it can do this in our country, right? So it's sort of losing control of the Cold War, losing control of your allies. They become way too bold. So you have to investigate this. And I think a lot of Americans are realizing this has gone too far, right? And so in this case of uh, Ghost of Sheridan Circle, I wanted to know the consequences of this kind of assassination, you know? When you kill an American, right, a Chilean in the heart of the United States, what's going to be the consequences of this? And in fact, I didn't really know the story. I knew some people had gone to jail eventually, but the story went on much, much longer. And I, I found, you know, the consequence is in many ways the end of the Pinochet regime, right? It leads to that in some ways. Um, and so I thought this is a fascinating story to tell. So as you mentioned before, we have 3,000 or so people killed 31,000 or so tortured and thousands more injured and forced to leave the country, about 2.3% of the population. Do these people ever get justice for what was committed towards them uh, from Pinochet and the security forces? Well, they don't get it from Pinochet, not him. I mean, he remains a dictator until 1990. They get justice in the sense that, you know, he, he has a referendum in the late 80s, basically saying, do you want me to stay? Do you want me to go? Um, and he thinks he's going to win, right? He thinks he's sort of either 
kidded enough people or scared enough people that they want him to continue in power. And then the no force narrowly wins, right? Which basically saying, no, we want you to leave. So he actually does leave and there's an election in 1990 and the democratic government comes in. But Pinochet remains as the head of the military. So you can't touch him, right? He's still very powerful and he's constantly threatening throughout the 1990s that he might bring back the dictatorship if he's pushed too far. For instance, if you try to punish him or punish any of his major generals and so on, right, his officers, if you try to bring them to justice for the crimes they committed under his dictatorship. First time I went to Chile was 91, and I remember a lot of these tensions where Pinochet's gone, but he's not really gone, right? So when you were in the country, did you speak to any of those everyday Chileans about their experience? You know, did any did you meet any people who had like that first-hand experience of either themselves or a family member being tortured or abused by the regime? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I was doing this book, I went back to Chile, um, and I spoke to, you know, friends of the Leteliers, right? There's him and there's his wife, and his wife, in fact, still is living. And so there's a lot of these memoirs, right, of, of Chileans who've been, who've been sort of tortured, detained, and so on. Uh, and a lot of people had much worse treatment than them. I mean, these guys, by and large, were not killed. But a lot of more ordinary people, like college students and so on, they're just killed or they're disappeared. And disappearing is in some ways almost worse than killing someone. Because if you kill someone, at the least there is a certain finality about it. If your son, your 21-year-old son, has disappeared and you're like a, you know, a 40-year-old mom, you have no idea what's happening. You don't know where he is. You don't know whether he's being charged with something. You go to the military, they tell you nothing. You don't know if he's alive. You don't know if he's dead. So you just keep on hoping that that person, you know, and you, and you also start doubting yourself and doubting your son. Did he do, you know, is he, was he a criminal? Was he sort of a guerrilla soldier and took the gun, took up the gun? Did he, you know, he must have done something to deserve this. And so this fear starts creeping into Chilean society. Let's not do anything because anything we do can bring us, you know, into a torture session or a prison cell or that sort of thing. You know, I don't think that the Chilean government was particularly keeping it a secret, right? They weren't sort of advertising the number of people they were killing, but I think they wanted it known that they were ending the Allende dream, right? And it was never coming back. They were squashing this thing completely. They were not shy about letting that be known. You know, Pinochet would sort of sit there and have a very sort of tough demeanor, and he presented himself as as a tough guy, right? Right, as sort of a, a murderer. And I think he wanted to be thought about this because it would it would instill fear in his enemies. And it worked, right? Um, and you want to instill confidence also in his allies, people like Nixon, and that worked also. Uh, and so he projected the image that he wanted to project while not being too specific about what was going on. But, you know, to give you one example, in the first days of the coup, they put a lot of the people that they arrest in a stadium and they start executing them in the stadium. I mean, if you're trying to hide what you're doing, you're not going to do it that way because a lot of people, they're just letting them go, right? People who are maybe less involved, they say, okay, well, just leave the country, we won't kill you. So those people are telling this story, right? But, you know, the story is clearly getting out there quite easily because that's part of terrorism. Right. If people don't know that you've done something awful, they won't be terrorized. Right. So you want it to be known while not being specific enough so that you can be brought into court for what you've done. So when some people hear the story, 
I can just imagine that they sort of see the U.S. as saying, we don't care enough to help, but we care enough to shut down the democracy or, you know, we don't care enough to help to, to bring aid like they did with the Marshall Plan in Europe, but we care to, you know, funnel CIA money uh, through your country. Do you agree with this assessment of U.S.-Chilean relations at the time, or is it more nuanced than that? Is it more complex? I mean, no, that's, that's fairly accurate, you know, but when, when you say we don't care, it often means we don't have the resources, right? Or we don't have the time. So when you're thinking of uh, an overthrow that's helped by the CIA or done completely by the CIA, like Guatemala or Iran, you're talking sometimes about hundreds of thousands of dollars, or sometimes maybe a couple you know, millions or tens of millions at the most, right? That's relatively cheap to get what you want out of another government. Whereas if you want to go the other way of encouraging you know, the growth of middle class, of development in that country, it can't happen in a couple weeks, can't happen in a couple months. It's going to take probably decades. You're going to be out of power by then. And you've got to commit billions of dollars, right? So a thousand times more. Uh, to maybe get what you want, right? Which is a government that's gonna, that's gonna resist communism, right? That's essentially what you want out of both of these things. So for instance, the Alliance for Progress under Kennedy had this goal in mind. We're gonna put billions of dollars into Latin America and we're going to prevent another Castro-Cuba revolution by encouraging development, so on, you know, by creating jobs and housing and you know, sewers and so on. Uh, but that's incredibly complicated. It need, you need you know millions of people to cooperate with this. You need for one to raise taxes on Latin Americans, and so you need rich Latin Americans to give more money to their own governments so that their governments in you know invest in the poor. You need the Congress of the United States to keep giving you these billions of dollars, even though they're not really seeing results. Right here and there, they'll see little results like a housing thing goes up, you know, some housing goes up, that sort of thing. But it's hard to say we've done it, we've prevented communism because it can always come. Right. Um, And so that takes great faith and great patience and a lot of resources. But a coup is easy. Right. So it's not just a question of caring or not caring, but it's a question of, you know, are you ready to put in this work? Uh, And so because of our history of having intervened so often in small, powerless countries, we think we can intervene anywhere in Latin America and it's fine. But it's actually much, much harder than we think. Can you explain... Any similarities or differences between what occurred back in 1973 to modern-day U.S. intervention in the Middle East or other regions? Yeah, yeah. No, I think the Middle East is probably the region that's closest. You know, I mean, there's the democracy argument, right? We overthrew Saddam Hussein because he was a dictator, right? Gassed his own people, so on and so forth. So, uh, But then there's the, the economic argument, which is that, you know, there's this one resource that dominates the region, uh, just like Chile, you know, is dominated by copper. And if you just take control of this one resource, then everything's going to go fine. We also know that it doesn't really work that way. And so there's all of these arguments that can create monsters and can have unintended consequences, right? In the Middle East, these challenges are so big that they required U.S. forces, right? If you want to throw, overthrow Saddam Hussein, nobody's going to do it for you, right? You can't get the Kuwaitis to do it for you. Uh, You've got to do it yourself, and it's a generation-long commitment, right? We're still not completely out of it, right? Uh, And so Afghanistan is similar to this. We just keep throwing money, taxpayer, U.S. taxpayer money at this problem, right? 
and it doesn't really go away. And we don't know what to do about it. So it's, it, you got to be really, really careful before you begin an intervention, right? You've got to, you know, there's really only a few interventions in all of American history that have ever worked, that have ever really sort of gotten the United States transformed an enemy into a friend and gotten real benefits for the United States. You know, beyond Germany and Japan after World War II, it's hard to think of another intervention like that that was really beneficial to the country doing the intervening, right? Why is it important for young people to know these stories? You know, if you seek out all of the perspectives, you could be equally critical of of everyone, right, or, or praiseworthy. You have to get into the complexity of things to see how real life is, right? Nothing is as black and white as we think. And so reading history is fundamentally understanding the complexity of the human condition, right? That they are, that even individual individuals are not necessarily all good or all bad, right? You can paint them as such, but they've all got flaws. Everybody in my book has some kind of flaw. You know, in that sense, uh, Latin Americans are also more flawed, right? When you investigate them more. And so there's an unfortunate trend, I think, a lot of history writing. If you're critical of the United States, then you become uncritical of Latin America, right? Which doesn't make any sense. We know that, right? People are complex, and you have to sort of delve into that complexity and just show it for what it is. Thank you so much for being here on this podcast. We've learned a lot about this very interesting story about Latin America. So if listeners would like to know more about you and your work, where can we find you? Um, you can look up any of my books on Amazon. I've got my own Amazon page. I've got, I think, 11 books by now. Uh, you can look me up. I'm a professor at Temple University in the history department. You can also look me up there. But you just Google Alan McPherson and uh, I'll come up and my books will come up. Well, thank you so much. Thank you very much for the interview. Dr. Alan McPherson is a professor at Temple University and the director of the Center for the Study of Force and Diplomacy. Jessica Chiraboga is a freshman at Dartmouth College. Untextbook is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Emman. Fernando Rain is our Miss Frizzle. Our website is on textbook.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Untextbooked. That's where you'll find more stories from the present and the past that shouldn't be overlooked. You know, it takes a lot of work to make this show, and we need your help to keep bringing you great interviews like this one. Go to untextbook.com and click support. Untextbook is a project of God History an organization that believes that history can and should advance civic well-being for individuals, society, and the planet.